once again for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to come, to sit at your feet, to listen to your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, we began a sermon series in the book of Esther, and we're continuing. It's a mini-series because it's only three uh, weeks long. So this week, uh, last week, this week, and next week, uh, we run right through the book of Esther. If you haven't read through it, I would urge you to do it. It's only 10 chapters, uh, fairly easy to read. Read it in different versions. You get a gist of the story. I, I sat down and read it within half an hour, and I'm not a very fast reader myself, personally. So, you know, to get the story, it's useful. I mentioned sort of in passing last week, but I think it's good for me to say it again. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon series last year, I came across a series of sermons by Pastor Tim Keller in my preparation, and I was really inspired by what he had said. So what I'm doing is really taking his sermons and repackaging them, and then, you know, good things must share, right? <laughs> so I'm, in a sense, borrowing uh, from him a lot of the material. But uh, just very quickly, a brief recap. The reason I'm preaching this is because uh, the theme for this year is for such a time as this, taken obviously from this passage that we are reading today or uh, considering today from verse 14 itself. And if you were here last week, you would know that we went through the material in chapters 1 and 2. And the story is told of how the Israelites who were in exile, uh, some had begun returning to uh, Jerusalem, but there were some who remained in Persia. In, in exile. And although originally when they were sent into exile, the Babylonian Empire was uh, supreme, um, the Persians had now superseded them, taken over that role. And uh, uh, Queen Vashti, the, ex uh, uh, the incumbent queen, angered Xerxes the king, and she got deposed. So there was a beauty contest, they uh, found Esther, and Esther was selected, you know, rose above every other uh, uh, lady in the land, and she now became queen, chosen and elevated. I was telling the group yesterday, you know, more drama than Harry and Meghan. <laughs> I don't know if you've watched that, I haven't. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the royal families have all kinds of uh, intrigue going on. And uh, the question we are asking ourselves as we look through this book of Esther, is how in morally and culturally ambiguous times can we believe that God is at work? Is God still working? How can He be at work in such situations and circumstances? Don't forget, the Jews were a cultural and a religious minority. So the way the society operated was very much against biblical values, very much against how they were taught from the Word of God to operate and to believe. Uh, one of the commentaries I've been using is by Karen Jobes. It's the NIV application commentary series, and it's one of the best I think I've come across. Uh, you know, she's very um, accessible, but also uh, good scholarship. And um, she tells in her introduction of how when she first became a Christian, you know, one of the things that uh, really um, um, sort of occupied her mind and, and concern was, how do I know the will of God? How do I know what I need to do? In God's will. You know, and I, I, many of us, I think, have gone through those types of phases. Maybe some of us are going through that right now. And she said, you know, one of the things she's learned, especially from the book of Esther, is this, that the true test for us knowing God's will is in living for Christ at this present moment. In the place where one happens to be, 
in whatever situation one finds herself or himself. And that's the point I want to make from this passage for such a time as this. That's the point I want to make for our theme for the year for such a time as this. And there are three points I want to make today. First is that the, we need to recognize the importance of where we are, our position, where God has placed us. Secondly, to understand the danger of being there in that position. But then the third is then to ask the question, how should we then live? And not just survive, but thrive, and really live uh, uh, for the greatness of God and the glory of His name. So, point number one, the importance of where we are, our position. We take the passage up from verse 6, and Mordecai is found in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And what that means is this. They were in the capital city of Persia, Susa, and uh, in front of the king's gate, within the city was another city. And it's basically the palace. I googled it, and apparently this is the ruins of what was uh, the palace mount in uh, the city of Susa. Uh, uh, I, I'm trusting <laughs> that it was labeled correctly. But nonetheless, it's, uh, if nothing else, it's an indication of what it was. It was like the highest point in the city. It was a seat of power. And that's where um, um, Mordecai found himself trying to appeal and actually get uh, um, Esther's attention because Esther was within. And why was he trying to do that? Verses 7 and 8, Mordecai told Hatak, who was the, uh, um, the eunuch who was in charge of uh, uh, taking charge of, of the security of Esther, told him exactly what had happened, the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written degree, decree issued in Susa that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and ask her, command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, if you had read through this book, you'd find in chapter 3 something had happened. There was a man by the name of Haman, who was a, a traditional enemy of the Jews. He says an Agagite, which uh, Agag was the king of Amalek, who had uh, opposed the people of God. And, um, you know, so the imp implication is this guy has some kind of um, uh, racial, uh, ethnic animosity already. But, you know, if you read the incident, it's like, Wait a minute, what's going on? It's almost like those staring incidents. Look, me, you know. <laughs> then suddenly you want to fight. And the next thing you know, genocide is uh, decreed. That he manages to maneuver and get Xerxes to sign, or, or sign off on a decree which says anyone can kill any Jew in the empire. And you can take all that they have. That's an attractive proposition, right? <laughs> Why not? That you, you can uh, kill with impunity. It's an automatic um, um, uh, immunity. Go ahead and do that. And, you know, this was what was happening. And this is why Mordecai was saying to Esther, you need to do something about this. Now, one of the reasons I uh, came uh, and settled on Esther is last year, you know, I've been involved with a movement called Movement Day, both in Singapore and then for Asia cities. And it's, uh, uh, Movement Day is largely an outbirth of um, the work of Ray Bakke, who just passed away last year. Uh, and he wrote this book, which is an important book, a theology as big as a city. 
calling for Christians to see their city as something which God has called them to make a difference in. That uh, he writes from a North American perspective, a lot of churches sort of flee the city because, you know, inner cities turn into uh, places where, um, um, you know, poverty resides and uh, a lot of the ethnic minorities come in and, and, and white flight. Uh, but he's saying, no, this is where God is calling us. And cities are complex. And in it, he actually has a chapter in which he points out about the synoptic histories of uh, the Old Testament. You know about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mac, and, uh, Matthew, Matthew Mark, and Luke. All right, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, the, if you read those three in tandem, you get a full picture of what happened, you know, when Jesus walked this earth. That there, there are things which sort of give you different aspects, different points of view to give you a whole picture. Well, in the Old Testament, at the end of the history books are three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And they give us a picture of what was happening towards the end of the exile, how God was restoring His people despite the fact that, you know, He had allowed them to, to enter into this time of judgment and, and refining. And Ezra was a, a, a priest, and he was uh, one in which... Um, uh, um, uh, uh, rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah was an urban city planner, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, bringing security in the society that the people of God were going to return to. And Esther was one who remained in exile, but rose to the highest levels in civic uh, uh, leadership. And, you know, his point is that cities are so complex that you need the whole body of Christ to, do, uh, to work together to restore God's plans and purposes for the cities. But what are God's plans and purposes? Now, if you've ever read uh, uh, the book of Revelation, and I know Badok CG is coming to the end, right? You, last night you were doing Revelation 21. And if you read right up to Revelation 21 and 22, you see the goal of God's salvation history. What His ultimate intent is, that the new heavens and the new earth are not, you know, totally wiping away with what we know here and now. But it's really reforming, refurbishing, making new again those things that have been uh, broken because of sin. And if you know the biblical story, you know that the brokenness that entered in through sin starts with the fact that we have a broken relationship with God. And that relationship needs to be restored. And that's why people like me, pastors, get up to preach the good news to restore people to right relationship with God. Missionaries go into places where the voice of God is heard small. And there are all other kinds of Christian ministers, whether in uh, parachurch organizations or other kinds of ministries that will do that to restore right relationship with God. And that's very important. But, you know, the brokenness in the world doesn't just uh, 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 result in this broken relationship with God. There's also a broken relationship with one another. Right? We see this in evidence with the wars and the rumors of wars we hear about. We see this in evidence in dysfunctional families. I'm told the, the biography, sorry to major on Harry and Meghan, but it's sometimes salacious details, right, about how broken that family is. And it's really a reflection of the fact that all families are broken. From the outside, that family looks like a model family, looks wonderful. People hold them up as, 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 as you know, uh, something to aspire to. 
But the reality is so far different. And the brokenness, of course, we see systemic in society. Things like racial discrimination. Things like discrimination in socioeconomic classes. All these things point to the fact that there is a brokenness in our relationship with one another. But there's also a brokenness in our relationship to creation. We, by God's grace, are coming towards the end or are finding a way out of the pandemic. And if you've read the news reports, you know that it's, it's, been a, it's a zoonotic disease, right? This COVID-19. It's crossed over from animals to human beings because we have a broken relationship with creation. That we've exploited the earth and, you know, it's uh, all kinds of things. I don't want to get into all of it. But you see it not just in diseases that uh, plague uh, the globe today, but also in climate change, which is evident. And the disaster that follow, that creation is broken, which is why we need all kinds to bring about the restoration of all things. We need diplomats, we need statesmen, we need educators, we need therapists, we need uh, scientists, we need bankers, we need accountants, we need everyone doing their part for God's purposes to bring this about. Dick Lucas, who was a longtime pastor of St. Helen's uh, Church, Bishop's Gate in London, Anglican pastor, uh, has a sermon series on Joseph. And um, I came across it because of Tim Keller mentioning it. <laughs> I haven't listened through all of it. But in it, you know, he has a very interesting illustration, which I, I want to borrow because I think it illustrates this point really well. Dick Lucas talks about the fact that if you went to a Christian conference, for example, and you walked by one of the book tables, and you saw on the book table a book entitled The Man That God Uses, or maybe another book that says The Woman That God Uses, what comes to mind? I think for most of us, we think, oh, this must be a book about some great pastor, or great preacher, or great man or woman of God, someone who had done wonderful exploits, you know, spiritual giant. Dick Lucas says this, In the long term, I think being a preacher, missionary, or leading a Bible study group in many ways is easier. There is a certain spiritual glamour in doing it, and what we should be doing each day is easier to discern, more black and white, and not so grey. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to use men and women in ministry, but in law, in medicine, in business, in the arts, in commerce. I could go on and on and on. He says in the church, that is a shortfall today. That sometimes we tend to valorize, we tend to make heroes of these uh, men and women of, of, of spiritual stature who do you know, great uh, um, spiritual things. And I'm not denying that those things are important. But the point Dick Lucas is making is that all of us are in important positions. The importance of recognizing where you are is not an accident, that God has placed you there for such a time as this. Second point, there is a danger in being there. Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, this is his re her reply, and you know, she was back and forth between Mordecai because Mordecai couldn't go into uh, uh, the, the, the high city because he was in sackcloth and ashes and there was an edict that banned them from coming in even though he himself was an official. 
Right? He could have gone in and, and found a way, but so no text message, ma. So you have to use a messenger to go back and forth. So that's what's happening here. All the king's servants, Esther is saying, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king for these 30 days. What Esther is saying to Mordecai says, look, yes, I'm in this position, but I'm in this position by the skin of my teeth. Right? You know why I'm here? The previous queen angered the king and she's out. <laughs> you want me to jeopardize that? And, and she says, you know, 30 days I haven't been called. Right? You think the king's been celibate for 30 days? No, he's got a huge harem. <laughs> She's out of favor. By this time, she's been married five years. I don't know. Maybe he's grown bored or something. <laughs> but she's saying, I have no guarantee if I appear unbidden, uh, uh, uncalled for on my own, that I may lose my life. I'm walking on a tightrope here. And this part of Esther's, uh, uh, the book of Esther, is really the climax of the whole book. It's a turning point of the entire story. In verses 13 and 14, Mordecai replies to Esther. She says to her, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for you, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I like the NIV. It says, Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Last week I mentioned to you, this is an interesting book, you know, some of the reformers didn't really, they weren't convinced it needed to be part of the canon of Scripture, part of the Bible. Because in the whole book, God is not mentioned anywhere. Not mentioned in any direct way, shape or form. But in some ways, you know, some commentators point out there is an allusion to God here because he says, you know, even if you don't do this, deliverance will arise uh, from someplace else, i.e. God will intervene. <laughs> or at least that's the implication there. But nonetheless, listen to the argument Mordecai is making to Esther. Saying to her is this, you know, God's going to make a way with or without you. But here's the rub of the problem. He says to her, if you take the risk, you might lose everything. Oops. If you take the risk, you might lose everything. But if you don't risk it, you will lose everything. Saying to her, you can't take cover forever. Some commentators think... Maybe this was a veiled threat. Oh, you take cover, lah. Then I will out you. <laughs> you know? And when all the Jews get killed, you will get killed along. But you know, it's no, no matter how you look at it, it's a brutal message. But let's take a step back and ask ourselves, what's going on here? What are the general principles? How does this apply to us? See, I think what uh, Mordecai may be trying to get at and what is important for us to understand is if we don't use our position, our power, our possessions, that which God has given us, that which, where He has placed us, to serve those outside the palace, 
We already did. Because the palace has become our prison and it has devoured us and robbed us of who we are and what we are meant to be. Tim Keller points to uh, the parable in Luke 16, a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that story? It's how a rich man, you know, in this life, enjoys life, and outside his window is Lazarus, who's a beggar, who, you know, doesn't have the good life. But they both die, and they find themselves, Lazarus in heaven, and the rich man in hell. He points out that, you know, this parable is the only parable in all the parables that Jesus told that a proper name was used, a proper uh, a name was given to one of the characters. Every other parable, there was a man who sowed seed, right? or, or there was a certain king, or there was a manager. Right? They're all like uh, very generic. But in this parable, Lazarus was named. However, you know, for some reason, Jesus chose not to name the rich man. And Tim Keller points out that there is a reason for that. Because that was his identity. Who he was, was that he was rich. And that's what he hinged his entire significance upon. His net worth was his self-worth. This is the danger of living in the palace. Danger of being in the position that we may find ourselves in. You know, you may say to me, Pastor, I don't live in a palace. Huh? I don't know if you've seen this uh, study that was just released by um, Henley and Partners, the 20th wealthiest cities in the world. Number one is New York City. Two is Tokyo, San Francisco, London. And what's number five? Singapore. And mind you, they measure, because they have data on all the high net worth individuals in the city, this is absolute numbers, okay? It's not percentage of uh, the population. Consider the fact that we're not a large city, we're not a mega city by any stretch of the imagination, and yet here we are, the fifth wealthiest city in the world. This is the data from uh, 2022. And I would guess... Some of you actually are numbered in this. <laughs> High net worth individuals. You may say, no lah, I'm not. But by their measure, you are. And because of that, even if we're not a high net worth individual, we live within a city that has outsized influence. Tremendous power, tremendous opportunities to make a difference in the world. I wonder, as we live in this palace... And the danger of living in the palace is this, that we gain our identity from our performance. And because of that, you know, our uh, consuming obsession is to get to that position and to find a way to stay in that position. There's a wonderful illustration that Tim Keller shares which uh, came out of his church. I, I try to replace most of his illustrations with my own. <laughs> Sometimes it's kind of difficult because uh, he tells a story of one day after service, as is his custom, he'll meet with visitors and you know, this lady he had noticed had come, uh, not yet a believer, exploring Christianity. And so he asked the inevitable question, who invited you to come to our church? She says, well, let me tell you this story. Uh, uh, not so long ago, 
I made a mistake, which uh, if it became known, my job was on the line. They would definitely fire me. It was a huge mistake. And uh, I went to my boss, and my boss said, don't worry about it. He ultimately took responsibility for her mistake. And he took a hit on his reputation because although he was more or less secure and he might lose his job, but not likely. Even if he didn't lose his job, he definitely lost points. Right? And his reputation took a hit. And she was flabbergasted. She went up to him after. I said, I've been in the corporate world for a long time. I've had a lot of bosses who take credit for my successes. But I've never had one who took the blame for my failure. Why did you do it? And the guy says, ah, don't, don't worry about it. Don't mention, don't mention. You know? <laughs> In his, his way, he said, because he's a man, you know, he doesn't want to <laughs> be. And she's not a man, so she persists and says, why? <laughs> you know, won't let him just brush it aside. He says, well, let me explain it to you like this. I'm a Christian. And Jesus Christ took the blame for me. That enabled me, sometimes, I hope all the time, to take the blame for others. And that's what motivated me to do what I did. She asked him, what church do you go to? <laughs> and that's how she ended up going to Redeemer uh, a Church in New York where uh, Tim Keller was a senior pastor. You see, for him, his value, his significance, his self-worth was not in his, the palace, not in his position, not in his possessions, not in how he had uh, accomplished many things. Because it wasn't his performance that defined who he was, he was able to put all of that on the line to protect her. In a sense, he was saying, if my career perishes, I perish. But that's not the most important thing for me. If we can't put our place in the palace on the line, we don't control our position, our position controls us. So my third and final point is this. How then should we live in the light of what we know? How do we live so that we don't allow our positions, our power, our possessions to control us? Well, in this story, we can see really it's ultimately by God's grace. Verse 14 what uh, Haman was saying to her, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In the Hebrew, this verb is in the hifil form, which without going into all the technicalities, means it's passive voice. It's not something she does, but it's done to her. In other words, a better translation might read, perhaps you were brought here for such a time as this. That it was by grace she rose to where she was. Haman was pointing that out to her. That she did not earn her beauty. She struck the genetic lottery and she was a beautiful woman that attracted the king's favour and, and, and uh, attraction. That the opportunity opened to her strictly by grace. What about us? Some of you with that thought, you know, oh, I'm in this position because of grace, God's grace. You should be offended. You, Pastor, you know how high I work in school? 
how much I sacrificed going out and partying, got the top of my class, got a good university, managed to interview with the top job, and where I am, I earned it. You got to where you were because your intellect was gifted to you. The gifts and the talents that you have came by grace. Your success is God's provision to you. And we see how Esther responds to just this hint of grace. He, she then replies to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I told you there's no mention of prayer, but this is an allusion to prayer. Ask you to fast must be prayer also. Lah, right? And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And the famous words of Esther, If I perish... I perish. You see the turning point? Meek, compliant Esther, which we looked at last week, who just went with the flow, who quietly, meekly just accepted the fact, you know, and then sub, uh, assumed her whole identity, set aside her, her, her Jewish identity and following the law of God and dietary laws, you know, just put it aside and just uh, um, compromised to get to where she was. Suddenly, she gives commands. Suddenly, she turns around and she says, if I perish, I perish. Karen Jobes, in her um, commentary, points out that the book of Esther mentions her name 37 times. Out of the 37 times, 14 times she's called Queen Esther. 13 of the 14 times happen after she says, if I perish, I perish. That she rose to greatness in her willingness to lay life down, to step forward in faith and to recognize that she is where she is for such a time as this. I could very well end the sermon right here. And many of us will look at Esther as the example and go off from here and, oh, so inspired and fired up. You go to your uh, office on Monday tomorrow and you say, oh, I'm going to be an Esther in my workplace. I'm going to stand up for Christ. You know, and, and it can go one of two ways. On the one hand, you, know, uh, you, you spin your wheels, you, you, you do all you can to become a good Christian, and then by Wednesday, well, hump day, <sighs> exhausted. I <laughs> can't make it. And maybe you make it to the end of the week, but by the next week, that's it. <laughs> that the inspiration can't last. Why? Because it's a motivation by guilt. You feel guilty. Look, oh, I've been living so selfishly. Or, you know, I've, I've just taken my privilege for granted and, 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 you know, elitist mentality and I don't care about the people below me or those outside uh, the palace in that sense. This kind of motivation can never last. It always wears off at some point. Or the flip side is this. Pendulum swings. You know, because you've been so quiet about your faith, you suddenly, okay, Monday, I'm going to take a Bible like pastors, big, big one, put on my desk. So everyone knows I'm a Christian. Not enough, I'm going to print out Bible verses and stick all over my cubicle. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to talk to everyone who comes along uh, to the point of being obnoxious <laughs> about my faith. But you know the problem with that? The problem with that is that we end up still finding our identity in our performance. Maybe not performance in a secular sense, but performance in a spiritual sense. That was the problem with the Pharisees. 
that they define themselves by the fact that, oh, I'm more righteous than this tax collector. I'm more holy and I know more of the Word of God than this submarine Christian. You know what submarine Christian is? My friend Samuel Pan is submarine Christian. On Sundays, they come to church, they surface, wow, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Then Monday, go under, periscope up, you know, and then take cover through the rest of the week. So if Esther, as example, is not the way to learn to reorder our lives, how do we see Esther? If be like Esther is not the lesson of this book, what is it? Secret is to see Esther as a signpost. Now, you stop and you think about how did Esther save her people? First and foremost, she identified with them. She recognized, I too am a Jew. And that I cannot take cover. I won't be saved just because I'm in a high position. But secondly, she mediated on behalf of her people. And as she stepped out to the king, the favor she gained from the king was then imputed to her people. And she took the risk to step out of the palace to say, if I perish, I perish. Does this sound familiar to you? Of someone who left the palace and throne in heaven? who came down to identify with his people, and then to mediate on our behalf on the cross, to gain a favour of God that is then imputed to us. He humbled himself. Didn't need someone to nag him or cajole him or ask him, you know, to, to stand up. You don't think you can take cover. He willingly, and he didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish. He didn't come at the risk of his life. He came at the cost of his life. This is the good news. This is the gospel that really, truly can transform us. What does this mean? Let me end with this thought. See, Esther as an example, and any biblical character as an example, while good, will ultimately crush us because it raises an impossible standard for us to try and attain in and out of ourselves, in our own strength. Because, like it or not, when we try and do that, we're still, in many ways, you know, putting our identity in the palace, in our performance, in our position. But if we see Esther as pointing us to Jesus and to the gospel, it frees us. As we understand the gospel, as we imbibe the truth of the gospel, we understand that we are valuable in His sight, that we are loved, that our future is secure. And our identity is not in all these external things. Our identity is rooted in Christ and what He has done for us. So much so that, you know, we are no longer ruled by these issues, these external issues. We can spend it, we can use it, we can uh, lose it for His sake and it doesn't phase, it doesn't change who we are. Do you hear that? You understand that? Esther acted on a hint of grace. 
We, on the other hand, live with the full revelation of God's grace. That while we were yet sinners, long before we knew Him, He knew us. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love to us in that Jesus died for us. I appeal to you, you know, if you're sitting in our midst, if you're watching us on the live stream, if you've never given your life to Jesus yet, why don't you consider doing that? He gave His life for you. It's an opportunity for you to believe and to receive Him into your heart. The God who created you, who knows you, calls to you and He says to you, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all you who've been trying to root your identity, your significance, your self-worth, in your performance, in your place in the palace, come to me and I will give you rest. But this is also a message for those of us who've already made that decision. Because truth be told, we still struggle with believing it. We still continue to root our lives in something else other than our position in Christ. You know, if we understand the message of the gospel, we are able now to identify with those outside the palace, have a heart for those who are poor and oppressed, find ways to make a difference where God has placed us, that God has put us here for such a time as this, to use our skill sets, our abilities, our influence to make a, a gospel difference in their lives. But ultimately, it's to, you know, the call of Jesus Christ, when He bids a man come, He bids a man come and die. It's, it's to, you know, unconditional obedience. And I, let me end on this uh, illustration. Again, borrowing from uh, Tim Keller, he talked about the fact that, you know, in his younger days, he was taught something about the universe. And he said, you know, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is um, 150 million kilometers, is equivalent to the thickness of a piece of paper, then the distance between the earth and the next nearest star is equivalent to a stack of papers that's 21 meters high, almost as high as this building. <laughs> or maybe more than halfway. Lah. Right? Can you imagine that? That's how far it is to the next star. But then if you measure the uh, diameter of the galaxy, the, uh, the Milky Way, it would be equivalent to a stack of papers 480 kilometers high. That's further than from here to KL, right? Somewhere between KL and Penang. <laughs> Stacked paper that high. That's how big our galaxy is. And our galaxy is a speck of dust in all the galaxies in the entire universe. And Scripture tells us this. Oops, where is it? That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And Pastor Tim asked the question, how is it you make Him your personal assistant? How is it that we make the creator of the universe someone whom we, you know, in case of emergency, break glass and just ignore Him the rest of our lives? That He's given Himself to us fully. You know, to be a Christian, we cannot say, oh, look-see, look-see. Or let me try first and see how. Lah. 
it's an all-in or all-out sort of thing. And if we learn to believe and trust in Him, then we begin to understand we have been called to where we are for such a time as this. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes to reflect on God's Word. I'd ask you to take a little bit of time right now just to ask yourself this question. What is the Holy Spirit saying to me? What is God calling me to in this year of 2023? Maybe you already know the assignment God has for you and you've been struggling with it through the last year. But today is the day for you to make that decision, to say, if I perish, I perish, to launch forth into the deep. For others, maybe you don't yet know your assignment, but maybe God is speaking to you to say to prepare your hearts, to prepare yourself, to be ready and willing so that when God calls, you will answer. Let me pray for all of us as we conclude this time. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, that you are a gracious God, that you come to us, you love us, you speak to us, that Lord, even when we don't see you at work, you're working, that you are a God who makes way where there seems to be no way. And Lord, we thank you. We are grateful for that everlasting love you have demonstrated to us. That Father, as your sons and your daughters, we can root our identity in who we are in Jesus Christ. That we are valuable, that we are loved, that our future is secure. And that Lord, nothing around us can shake us. The wind and the waves have no bearing on our identity in you. Thank you, Lord, for that. But Father, we ask you give us the courage to live in the light of that reality, in the light of our position in you. Father, make the grace of God real in our lives, beyond just an intellectual assent to a heartfelt belief and conviction and a motivation. May it transform us in this year of 2023 to become all that you are calling us to be, Lord. Helping us to live for such a time as this. These things we ask and we pray in your Son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen.